understand the national forest system and why it came about, obviously we have to go back in, in time to really kind of the post-Civil War era. The federal government found itself the, the owner, uh, for lack of a better word, of huge tracts of land out west and was trying to figure out what it needed to do or what it wanted to do with those lands. So starting in, um, in 1876, um, it sent folks out to assess the extent of uh, what they called the public domain lands, which were all of these lands in, in the West. One thing that they did not want to have happen, or many folks did not want to have happen to these lands, was, was what ended up uh, happening to privately owned lands in the East and the Midwest, and particularly the forests of the East and the Midwest. In the 1800s and, and even the 1700s, those, uh, those landscapes had been pretty heavily cut over and were in pretty tough shape in the latter half of the 1800s. So uh, policymakers, uh, folks in the federal government, didn't necessarily want to see that happen uh, to the West. So starting in 1891, Congress passed a law called the Forest Reserve Act, and that allowed the president to set aside lands from these public domain uh, lands in the West as forest reserves. So that was really the first instance where we saw, aside from a few select uh, examples like Yellowstone National Park, for example, um, but that, that law in 18, 1891 was really the first time that we saw presidents set aside lands in the West for public use and, and for preservation and, and conservation. Uh, fast forward a few years, in 1905, the Forest Service is officially created, and the management of those forest reserves shifts from the Department of Interior to the Department of Agriculture through the Transfer Act, which was signed into law by uh, President Teddy Roosevelt. So 1905, we see the Department of Agriculture start to manage the national forests under the just-formed Forest Service, and that's really kind of where uh, we, we, we get the national forest system that we have today, at least the start of it. So reforesting those lands and, and bringing those watersheds back to health. And again, that happened in 1911. So it wasn't too far after 1905, when the Forest Service was first actually created, that we really start to see it become a, a fully national organization stretching you know, from the east all the way across the west. And then the last really important piece is in 1937 with the Bankhead-Jones Farm Tenant Act, which was a New Deal era program that was designed, again, to, uh, did two things, but for our purposes, it, per it allowed the federal government to purchase land, this time in, in the Great Plains, in areas where the Dust Bowl had ravaged soil fertility and uh, was creating all sorts of problems. So the federal government, once again, was authorized to purchase lands from private landowners and restore them. And this time, instead of planting forests, they planted grasses and other vegetation, and they brought those those land blow hazards, they were called. They brought those back to health by, by getting uh, grasses and other vegetation back, back established so that the soil didn't blow away. About 25 years later, in 1960, those lands were officially, or many of those lands, were officially brought into the national forest system as national grasslands through a law in 1960, and now there are 20 national grasslands that the Forest Service manages around the country, in addition to um, about 155 national forests that they manage, um, and they're spread all across the country from Alaska all the way to Puerto Rico. So, um, yeah, the Eastern National Forests are, 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 I think, a really interesting story. Um, and again, it really stems from that, that restoration notion uh, because those high elevation watersheds were, were in such tough shape because of the industrial logging practices in the 1800s. Um, the Forest Service really kind of cut its teeth through in restoration by, by focusing its efforts in those eastern national forests. As far as timing goes, they, they came a little bit later than many of the western forests. 
the Weeks Act, which allowed the federal government to purchase those lands in the east, that didn't get passed until 1911. And then, of course, you know, they, they couldn't just go out and say, um, we want to buy this, this tract here, you know, without any homework. So, so the Forest Service developed a system and, and um, various ways of assessing the land, finding a willing landowner, making sure that it actually did cover a watershed, and then purchasing that land and starting a process of reforestation. So really that didn't, you know, probably kick into gear until later in the, in the 1910s, uh, you know, in, into the 1920s. And it lasted uh, up until, I think, probably for another 20 or 30 years after that, the, the actual acquisition of these, of these lands. And then over time, um, also, you know, these, these smaller tracts of land um, were built on and they were combined. And, and, and so over time, you end up getting sort of the modern borders of those eastern national forests that we know today. Most of those are in Appalachia. They're in the mountains in the Appalachian Range. Uh, but they really, they stretch all the way from Maine. There's a little corner of uh, the White Mountain National Forest in Maine. Mostly, the, the forest itself is mostly in New Hampshire, um, into Vermont and New York and Pennsylvania. So northern New England does have some national forests as well. And uh, they stretch all the way down into the deep south. Alabama uh, and Mississippi have national forests. I think Mississippi has more than a million acres of national forests cumulatively, um, which is really quite a, a large amount of land. Because of the general just sort of historical ownership pattern of land in the east, our national forests really do represent some of the best public land access opportunities in the east. And so they're they're quite beloved. They're several hours from some of the major cities on the east coast, but that doesn't stop people from heading out and, and enjoying them. You know, the Monongahela National Forest in West Virginia, the George Washington Jefferson, uh, which is also in Virginia and West Virginia, they're incredibly popular. Probably the most popular national forests in the east are down in North Carolina outside of Asheville. The Nantahala Pisgah National Forest are a huge destination for folks across the southeast. And of course, you know, you have the Appalachian Trail, which is managed, the trail itself is managed by the Park Service, but it cuts across a lot of national forests. And so the east would be very different without uh, that national forest system. Oh, that is so. Oh, there's so many. There's 175 of these, and yeah, I have been fortunate I know, to, but, to, to yeah, several of them. <laughs> limited to, um, you know, four or five, I guess, or something, you know. Sure, sure. <laughs> Absolutely, Ron. Um, so I think, first and foremost, the Superior National Forest, I think, is uh, is really intriguing. It's up in Minnesota, and it includes the Boundary Waters Canoe Wilderness Area. So I'm a big uh, paddler. I love getting out in a canoe or on a stand-up uh, paddleboard. And so spending, you know, 10 days or, or five days in the Boundary Waters Canoe Wilderness Area on the Superior is, uh, is something that I would really love to do at some point in my life. So that's very high on my list. I, I'm, I'm pretty captivated by the Tongass National Forest up in Alaska. That single forest is 17 million acres, Ron. It's, it's just mind-blowing how big it is. And, you know, it's got everything from, you know, old-growth cedar trees to, you know, ocean to glaciated mountains. It's got the whole deal. So that that would be a really cool spot to check out. And there are um, there's some pretty cool opportunities to see grizzly bears eating salmon up on the Tongass. So I'd love to go visit one of those ecotourism spots someday and watch the grizzly bears catch the salmon in the rivers. That just seems amazing. And then 20% of California is covered by national forests. That includes the Sequoia National Forest, which borders the Sequoia National Park and Kings Canyon National Park and that whole area. And, you know, anybody who has 
spent any time in the presence of just huge, you know, ancient trees, I think can appreciate how powerful an experience that is. So I would love to get down and, and explore that zone a little bit. And if you'll indulge me for just a quick second, I, I think that's a really good example of, of of a place where there's a national forest right next to a national park that has a lot of the same either, you know, fauna or flora. In this case, we're talking about redwood trees, but a lot of the same scenery, a lot of the same topography, uh, similar ecosystems as that national park. But the national forest is probably a lot less visited than that national park. And so it's quieter. You have an opportunity to kind of get out and do your own thing away from the crowds. And so um, I, I think in particular that Redwoods National, or excuse me, the Sequoia National Forest intrigues me because it, I think it offers a lot of the same uh, opportunities as, as Sequoia National Park, but it's, uh, it's going to be a little bit quieter and a little bit uh, less busy. And, and I like that. I'm attracted to places like that for sure. 